Hey everybody, welcome to Video Night Beyond. It is our last episode. The reason for this is I need to streamline some shit. <laughs> it's time to move everything over to Hit Rewind. That's the main show. This has just been kind of uh, keeping the beast alive with some electric shocks. Uh, Video Night has basically done over with. Uh, John was... I should introduce... Hey, John. <laughs> hey. Hey. Uh, John took over with uh, when we did the spinoff Video Night Beyond. So we figured 1980 to 1989 is a good way to end it, just that decade, and then everything else is just going to be the sci-fi section of, or sci-fi, fantasy, whatever, uh, section of Hit Rewind. Just get everything under one banner, it's just going to be all Hit Rewind, and then the spinoff show uh, that my sister and I do, for the most part, is uh, We Got the Beat. And th that's it, just those two shows, because I've been at this for seven years now, and I am tired of the discombobulation. Too many shows just consolidated all. Yeah, they're just all segments of one show. Um, so, final episode, 1989, special five movie episode, everybody. We've only ever done one of those, like, what, 1984? I think we did five movies or something like that. We've only so, ever done yeah. it. Yeah. Um, so, I will pass this off to my co-host. He'll choose the movies, and I'll discuss them with him. Well, okay, how do we go with the, kind of the outlier one that I I seem to have got, you know, convinced you to watch an anime, and, you know, what an anime, Castle in the Sky. I guess. Well, I've seen I've seen a few animes, but I'm more the action-oriented anime. This is kind of like that, there's adventure in it, but it's whimsical. I don't do big-eyed, happy-face, whimsical, but it is fucking gorgeous. And I actually, I know there was some bitching online about like James Vanderbeek, uh, and uh, you know, you know, picking celebrities, and I thought they fit fine. Well, that's the thing is, okay, uh, Laputa, uh, Castle in the Sky. It's it actually came out in '86 uh, in Japan. It's a Miyazaki film, uh, and basically, we for until until anime became something in the United States, we kind of got anime films piecemeal a little bit and Miyazaki's work was kind of the the stuff that if we were going to get it we were definitely going to get get his work but it was always on some weird delay so in like 89 they uh they this company dubbed it uh released it through streamlined video and uh it was I am not sure if I've ever actually seen that dub but uh, back in '98, Walt Disney got got their ha got control of the uh, releasing for all the uh, the distribution for Miyazaki's films, and so they went and redubbed everything. And so that's why you've got uh, Kiki's Delivery Service with uh, oh god, what's her name from who was in she was Mary Jane in the uh, Sam Raimi Spider Kirsten Dunn. Oh, yeah, yeah, and like in this one, you've got Anna Paquin and James Vanderbeek. You know, also, of course, Leachman, Mark Hamble, fucking Mandy Patinkin's in this. <laughs> or as I, I like to say, because I get tongue-tied easily, Pandy Matinkin. <laughs> but, but that's the thing, is it's... Miyazaki's films are kind of... I guess, the you know, because Disney put them out, you can kind of say, and we talked about this a little bit on the comic show, like, Disney-esque, uh... Studio Ghibli is kind of the Walt Disney uh, of Japan in a way because they do a lot of fam uh, family-friendly films. Yeah. 
and they're also a actually a little bit of a better thing is actually to kind of call them the Pixar of Japan because they're the ones who make these family films, but there's always something a little bit more in them. Because Miyazaki, uh, he has his fairly traditional heroic characters who are completely selfless and they are always out to go and do you know help anyone in need regardless of what it's going to cost them but his films also have like pacifistic themes because the only people who usually cause violence are the villains and it's always to their detriment our heroes usually try to avoid conflict try to talk their way out of it it's not that our, our hero isn't, or, you know, because our hero teams up with these sky pirates and stuff, and there is fighting, but anyone who's genuinely trying to hurt someone else is usually a villain, and then they get their comeuppance, you know, pretty, you know, pretty easily. Uh-huh. It's usually as a result of the violence that they cause. Uh, these films are, his films, he has an environmentalist theme, like when they, when our heroes find this floating city, it's a uh, you know this kind of a garden of eden almost it's you know this perfect little ecosystem and our heroes you know watch this robot that's been you know kind of tending the gardens and making friends with all the animals and stuff and the moment that the villains show up and start blowing the shit out of it because they're searching for weapons you know it's our heroes we have to save this paradise even though we've only been here about five minutes so it's and more, it's, yeah, it's, it, the fact that there's more empathetic characters, which seems to be kind of, in this era in anime, seem to be like a new thing. Yeah, because anime, it's usually very segmented into a lot of stuff. There's a lot of action things. It, there's there's a lot of complex themes in some of these in some of these shows. I mean, shit, watch some of the gun, the old Gundams and Mac, well, not Macross. Gundam's usually the politically motivated ones. Macross, I think, is a superior series, but that's just because boiling it down to we kick the crap out of aliens because we have better pop music. <laughs> okay. Uh, but it, like you said, the art, it's, it is so beautiful because, sure, you kind of have these simplistic character designs and clo- you know clothing and stuff, and then... The technology, the world around it, all this stuff is like super detailed and it's just, you know, a feast for the eyes. And that's one of the things that Studio Ghibli films do so well is you have this, you know, this diesel punk world and it's fully realized that you can feel that there's a history there. Yeah. Is this kind of one of the early runs of this like steampunk? Oh, yeah, you said diesel punk, which is the first time yeah. I've ever heard those words before. Well, it's think think of steampunk is like okay, everything is like based around steam engines. These ones are a little bit more based around like diesel engines. So, you know, yeah, it's it's like the next step of steampunk. But yeah, you could also call this steampunk if you really if people really wanted to. Uh huh. But diesel punk, considering that it's less steam oriented, is a little bit more of a or apt term. But God, this. Again, uh, Miyazaki's films are always worth watching. It's maybe not the best, maybe not even my favorite. Probably go Nausicaa of the Valley of the Winds. Probably, for me, Miyazaki's probably his pinnacle, maybe. And that's way early on in his career, which is kind of sad. But the man's made 
you know, films that will stand the test of time. And this is certainly a good example of it. So, I don't have a whole lot to say. I, I have a problem with whimsy, whimsy and, and I just couldn't get into it. Uh, you, I know, I know. Cynical. If you have giant robots beating the shit out of each other, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, how about... Uh, maybe not giant robots beating the shit out of each other, but also uh, less whimsical and still more environmental, The Abyss. Oh, God. Okay, apparently there's a much, much longer version of this. I'm not exactly down for more. It's fine the way it is. I mean, maybe there's something amazing in the director's cut that I don't know. Have you seen it? Yeah, I love the director's cut. Oh, what's uh, what's new? The there there's you know scenes here and there that kind of flesh out some things, especially with Michael Beaton's character going nuts. There's a little more in that. Where the big disconnect between the two versions lie is in the finale, because over the course of the film, it basically the story is about. This sub gets not gets wrecked, and there's uh, people trying to salvage it. You have the U.S. and you have Russia because it's kind of international waters. So there's this uh, under you know experimental underwater deep drilling station that gets kind of convinced to uh, house some some seals who are going to go and reclaim any important stuff. Happens to be a nuke, uh, but they go and do that, and things happen. Over the course of the story that you're not seeing in the regular cut, but it's in the director's cut, is there's a little bit of Cold War tensions happening, and you know Russia's like there's things are starting to go bad on the surface because of this international incident. The aliens that are uh, that are underneath the waves have decided that they're going to wipe out humanity because, especially because you know Michael Bean has gone crazy and decides he's going to nuke these aliens because he's fucking nuts. Yeah. So they start doing these like mega tsunamis that are about to like wipe out everything, but uh, they stop. And this is, you know, at the end of the film, our hero, like uh, Ed Harris uh, has gone to defuse this thing. And the aliens stop wiping out humanity because of Ed Harris's, you know, decision that he's going to, again, sacrifice himself for the greater good. He knows that he can only get down to this uh, nuke and disarm it, and it's a one-way trip. Right. And so they're going to, you know, because of this uh, sacrifice, the aliens are not going to wipe out humanity. And they kind of, it's kind of like, you were this close. And part of why that wasn't in the film. That was one of the things that Cameron cut was he was showing the film before they uh, had all the effects, effects finished. Uh-huh. So it looked, it did, so you had like, oh, here's a special effect. You know, some people running special, you know, you know, insert special effect here. And people didn't really understand what they were seeing. So they, you know, kind of had a negative feel to it. So... They he ended up just going, you know what, let, let's just cut this. We, we'll remove all this stuff. But he was given the opportunity to finish it. And honestly, I I think that, it, like I said, I think it's a superior cut of the film. I do think that the effect that we did do for the, like, mega tsunamis uh -huh. does look pretty shitty. Oh, okay. Even, even completed, 
I think it looks like garbage. But it it definitely feels more complete in the story because as opposed to how it just kind of ends with, oh, aliens picked me up and they just carried me to the surface. You know, it's like, we're all buddies for whatever reason. You know, the thing that I like about this movie is that it kind of picks up elements of the first Alien movie where it's a blue-collar, just uh, everyday kind of Joes working uh, this really intense job. So it has some of that elements, and of course it has the... Um, it's funny, I think about it now, because Michael Bean's kind of like the... Uh, I can't remember the name of the character in the first one, the robot that Ian Holm plays. Oh, oh, Ash. Ash. Kind of has that element, and then there's a single creature. Well, you think it's a single creature. Um, and the fact that he had to... I don't know if he had a slim option of who he could choose to be in this, because it's extremely strenuous physically. I remember reading articles way back in 89 in Premier Magazine that Ed Harris would constantly get in fights, and at one point he wanted to strangle James Cameron. Um, because that scene where they have to swim under... Uh, under the ship and go over to where Michael Bean is. They had to shoot over and over and over till he thought his lungs were going to explode because Cameron just wanted it perfect and he was dying underwater literally. And I imagine it was hard to get the right people, but especially if they're big names because they're going to cost a lot or they just don't want to do it. They don't want to put themselves at risk. So that uh, the fact that he picked Ed Harris and Mary Elizabeth Mastrantino and Michael Bean, people who were at the time, you know, not even B-level. They were kind of like independent guys. Michael Bean was probably the most well-known. And that adds to the blue-collar feel because they're not recognizable faces. But god damn, are they good. Ed Harris oh, is on fucking fire in this. It's, it is a phenomenal, like, everybody in this is amazing. And, again, you mentioned some of the horror stories where it's just, you know, yeah, Ed Harris. Well, a lot of this stems from the fact that Cameron wanted to shoot this underwater. And he developed, you know, kind of this is the beginning of him making stuff for his movies because he kind of worked with people and developed a uh, type of mask where you can actually see the actors, you can see their faces, see their performance, and speak. And microphones are built in so they can actually, you can actually take their recordings. Uh-huh. And, you know, with minimal, uh, minimal processing, you know, you can actually take that performance instead of having them ADR it later. But, you know, it's like there's so much stress and, you know, emotion, you know, physical and emotional uh, stress on these people that people were breaking down. Uh, hell, even James Cameron almost died. Wow. Yeah, he apparently, uh, he, God, was it? he, his tank, uh, while he's shooting underwater, tank wasn't filled up all the way. So all of a sudden he runs out of air. And he's going to the surface, and one of the safety divers comes in, and he's, oh, you know, let me go and get this guy some air. Except the uh, divers, the air tank that he had was broken. It was just pumping in more water into his mouth. Oh, God. So so the guy, so Cameron's trying to break free and get to the surface so he can actually breathe. And the divers think, oh, no, this guy's just having a panic attack. Let me hold him down and, and, com- and comfort him or something. Oh, come on. And apparently, and you know, James Cameron had to punch this guy in the face and surface before he passed out. So, yeah, uh, this movie was not good for anyone. But was, God, we—it was for us to enjoy. 
Yeah, like Ed Harris uh, will not talk about this movie. Yeah, he re- yeah, yeah. It's, it's funny thing is, it didn't, really didn't do anything for his career. This came out in a summer that was so thick with hits. Like the summer of 84, 82, 87. There's so much that was huge that uh, The Abyss kind of got lost. This feels like it should have been released maybe in fall. Like it could have been a slow burn all the way through like September and October. Well, yeah. Well, actually, had they uh, given enough time to do any more complete, you know, complete some of those effects on that ending and uh, shown people that, yeah, we probably would have had a completely different film too. Yeah, but I think this was at the time maybe the most expensive movie ever made. I can't. I feel like there's a couple. There's like Dune or maybe one of the Supermans or more. But this was fifty million dollars in nineteen eighty nine money. That's five more than what Batman cost. And it broke even. It, it, of course, it's a big video hit. And, of course, it's legendary now. The problem is, what the fuck is James Cameron doing making us wait forever for this to come out on Blu-ray? Oh, who knows? What who stranglehold knows? does he have on Fox? What the well, fuck? Uh, there's, there's thought that it might be they're waiting for... Well, it's like, I've heard two things. One is, it's, it is complete. Like, there is a, there's a version ready to go. And it's just being waited, you know, till like uh, Avatar Two shows up, because that's got a that's gonna be all set in the water and stuff. So there's that. But then again, I've also heard no, it's not ready to go in any form. And James Cameron just hasn't, you know, had time because he's been dicking around with seventeen, eight, you know, eight million Avatar sequels. Right, and it was, so, then explain t- uh, True Lies why that's not done. That has nothing to do with Avatar. It has nothing to do with underwater. And again, he's in the he's in the Avatar business now. Oh God, I would just Fox would just go fuck you. We're moving on. Just give me a good, give me a beautiful transfer. Yeah, um, yeah. I think this is the best of the bunch right here. They, but but it's also the I don't know if there's a whole lot to say about it because it's widely acclaimed. There's nothing new to really say. I just really enjoyed. It. I had seen it since it came out. Yeah, it, I do think it's probably the best of the films. I, again, I I was a little let down that I was watching the uh, the theatrical cut, uh-huh. only because again I like that ending. But I also still that that water tentacle scene. Damn, does that look good? Up until they uh, cut cut that water tentacle and uh, it it has to escape, then it looks like shitty '90s CG effects. But up till that, up until that point, where it's just, you know, it's it's exploring the ship, it's making the faces that could pretty much be released now, and no one would have a complaint. What is next? Next is Little Monsters, which I genuinely have no idea if I'd seen this before. I read the book like, first. It's not based on a book. I read the adaptation at the library, which I did with a handful of movies back then. Oh yeah, I, I've done that. I've done that too. I had like Back to the Future two and three adaptations and stuff, but uh, this is one. At the time that this came out, I really did not like horror films or anything that could be potentially scary. Just all that stuff really bugged me. Yeah, I was on borderline at this time. Sorry, I interrupted. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, it just watching this thing. It. I sit there and go like, as as an adult, I'm going, yeah, okay, this is silly and what you know, whatnot. But you know, as a kid, this shit would have turned me off completely because like the, uh, 
eyeballs popping out. Uh, <laughs> Faces melting off. Yeah, boy's face. Oh, God. All that stuff would just be, you know, the macho's trying to scare the baby. All that stuff would have just really bugged me, and I, I would not have been able to sit through it at I, the time. I'll tell you this. Uh, the first time I saw this, I almost threw up when his face melted off. I didn't know what the fuck that was. I thought it was just like raw hamburger meat, and I was I wanted to throw up. But, um, yeah, so I read the book first, and then it was one of those videos that would bug the guy at the counter every single day at Farmore, our local drugstore that also rented movies. And uh, I think he hated my guts by the end. I found it by accident later on the wall. And uh, I love the shit out of this. It doesn't hold up as well as I wanted to. But I do admire its plot and its imagination. I think the weakness lies just in, in the actors. Uh, Howie Mandel is so fucking annoying that he's exhausting. Fred Savage just hasn't hit that point where he's considered an actor. He's just a competent, charming kid. But he's amazing compared to everybody else. Yeah, well, that's the thing. It's like, yeah, definitely this is not a good movie. But it makes sense in a cultural context because, you know, Howie Mandel at the time was a well-known, popular comic. And you did have Fred Savage, who was on a pretty popular TV show. So throwing them together in a movie made sense. But mm, I I think kind of what the subplot of... You know, the kids' parents being on their way to divorce. I kind of wish that happened earlier in the film, if not basically being like a backstory thing. And it turns out, you know, it becomes more about it more explicitly about this kid acting up due to the turmoil of his family life. Right. And then while we know that it's, you know, because there's a monster, there's actual monster that he's becoming friends with and all that shit, you know, it's. You know, we end up basically kind of having the single mom trying to deal with the fact that her kid, you know, kids having this uh, turn into a little shit for, you know, just based on the reactions of what's going on. Right. As opposed to Daniel Stern kind of being this, you know, overly Short aggressive. Yeah. yeah, like this super aggressive parent. And, you know, it's like maybe having him pop up in the you know in the climax like they like they do would be it would have been a nice little easter egg for wonder years fans oh yeah you know, i forgot and would have been oh you know and you kind of just have a nice chuckle at that yeah i don't like I and mean, yes it's it's a metaphor for going through puberty and you know your terrible teens but i don't really care for anything that takes place outside of monsterverse in, in the first half of the movie drags I mean, there's a little bit of mystery, and I like how they do some of the low... I mean, it's real low-budget effects, but they do, I think, a clever way of cutting around that, you know, using the floor stunt the way they do, and, and him in the, the empty clothes. Um, it's just all, you know, wire work and uh, uh, just visual trickery. And um, I, what I love, though, is the minute they get into his underworld universe and they show all these monsters... And, you know, the the set design is fantastic, even though I'm pretty sure it's a lot of trickery with the matte paintings and stuff like that. Um, that world, I think, is more interesting than what's going on up in ours. Yeah, the, the monster, I'll say this, the monster world is a little more interesting, but the creature designs and all that stuff just fairly lazy as hell. Yeah, I always thought it was kind of funny that uh, some of them are just kids, just kids with a little bit of goop on their face. I'm like, that's not really a monster. Yeah, and again, the idea is that 
it's the longer that you're down there, you be, you know, a kid will turn into a monster. But at the same time, it's like, uh, yeah, except these just look like kids. They don't look like monsters. Yeah, but They're also, cool. why? Oh, you know what? That's my complaint. Stupid then, because maybe that child had only been down there for a little bit. Well, no, it's still some of these creatures. Most of these creatures should have been there for a while. You would have you would have to assume because there's not really that many care you know creatures. Sorry, it's just basic. Are you a kid forever? I must have missed this. Are you a kid forever once you're down there? Sort of. I. I it's hard to tell because of Howie Mandel and the guy playing the uh, well boy and the other. And yeah, Frank um, Whaley and uh, Rick Dukeman from uh, The Burbs. Yeah, it's like, it's kind of hard to tell with them because, you know, they're monsters who've been around for a while, we have to assume, and they have a little bit more of a monstrous uh, appearance. But it's like you have the the one who has super long legs. And it's like, okay. <laughs> or you have or you have Ben Savage, who's, you know, not only, not just not only playing uh, Fred, his, you know, his brother's, brother in the real world but he's also playing one of the monsters there he's playing baseball and he literally just go like wait that's just ben savage with a little bit of uh shit on his face (laughs) yeah it's it's too low budget for its own good but i can't see a studio really putting a lot of money behind this This is when vestron was flush with all that cash from the surprise hit of dirty dancing and they started to expand out but the problem is, is everything else after Dirty Dancing was a huge flop. So then they found themselves completely broke in 1989. They had to sell their catalog off to different companies. Uh, MGM dumped this on 139 screens, which makes me wonder, why the fuck even bother picking it up if you're going to barely release it? Well, I guess it was, well, if we pop, you know, we've got it for this amount of money. If we throw it out here, baby, we'll at least recoup our cost. Maybe they just thought, oh, this would be a good video hit. I don't know, but I feel like this is another one of those that disappeared for a long time. You could not find it until they finally re-released it. Yeah, I I remember, like I said, I can't tell if I'd seen it, you know, any time when I was really young, but I have very vivid memories of them going to the bullies, uh, into the bullies' refrigerator, <laughs> uh, peeing in the apple juice, and the guy <laughs> going, there's piss in my apple juice! Yeah, it's a slight film. It's it's imaginative and fun, but it is uh, not good. Well, here's another imaginative and not particularly all that good movie, Adventures of Baron Munchausen. This one's frustrating. It's so beautiful and well-designed, but it's so complicated. Baron, uh, 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 Terry Gilliam has this visual uh, design in his head that I've never seen from anybody else. Nothing else compares to it. But I always thought his cinematography itself is always like this murky, muddy look. I don't know if it's because where he shoots. I think that hampers it a bit. But he also has these ideas that are hard for the general public to grasp. So they're never successful movies, really. They're always very expensive. But with the exception of Fisher King and Twelve Monkeys, he's never really had a hit. Yeah. Now, this was my first Terry Gilliam film. And it is a pretty damn intense movie for an eight-year-old. Because that fucking angel of death. Yes. Oh boy. When it busts out, that's a good puppetry. Oh, it's it's a beautiful it's a beautiful puppet. It is very disturbing and very uh, not not cool because they keep having it shriek and stuff. And but 
I mean, this is a very interestingly cast film. You got, you know, John Neville, Eric Idle, Oliver Reed, Uma Thurman's in this, Sarah Pauly, Jonathan Price, Robin Williams. Fucking Sting is in this movie. <laughs> yeah. But it, it, it's a film that is very stage friendly, kind of. Because it's designed, it, it basically feels like all they did was, and not not counting that yes that's the framing stories that that they're you know he's uh, telling the story on a stage to to a frightened audience but it is very theatrical and it really works in john neville's favor because you know being he's primarily a stage actor you know he's got this beautiful balance of being able to uh you know do that stage acting you know gravitas thing and then have the you know the subtlety that is kind of that you find in screen acting that you can't necessarily do on stage yeah because those are two two different skills now this is the guy who was supposed to be don quixote correct and he was too sick and they they, they had to stop filming yeah yeah okay i only know from this and (laughs) x-files he's like if i remember right yeah he was but I'll be honest, I would be very interested in the alternate reality where Doctor Who's John uh, Pertwee played the Baron. Okay. Uh, which uh, also, you know, Peter O'Toole was also one of the people that they would have cast. But oh. Yeah, it, it go like Peter O'Toole is like, I think you'd do a great, you'd be amazing, but I would really love to see John Pertwee as that. Uh, but Sean Connery would have been the King of the Moon, and Marlon Brando as Vulcan. Oh, and Marlon Brando, come on, come on. Marlon Brando no, that, is so difficult to work with. <laughs> oh, of course he's so difficult to work with. It would still be a very, very interesting uh, change in dynamic yeah. in those scenes, wouldn't it? What you, I mean, Robin Williams, come on, trading him out. Wait, he was the King of the Moon, right? Right. He was the King of the Moon, okay, yeah. which, which having Sean Connery as King of the Moon would be so fucking weird. Yeah. Ha- actually, having after having seen, you know, Robin Williams, well, I'll be honest. That is probably maybe the worst Robin Williams performance ever. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I hate not, to talk ill of the dead, but there's exhausting no. performances from this man. I still think Father's Day is the worst, but this is rough. Yeah, it, it's like no, he's having fun. It no, no doubt in my mind, he had a blast. He was there to play, and he's playing. That's I'm not. Yeah, it's like it's not not saying, not trying to be speaking ill of of the man, because shit, the man's an amazing actor. But he was basically just there to play and just kind of Terry Gilliam just kind of took whatever he could get. And that was it. like, you know, he's goofball antics and it's, you know, you kind of just go like, I don't understand any of your choices, sir, <laughs> but this is, but this is what you gave us. So, <laughs> but yeah, there's like the, this film transitions in so many beautiful ways from reality to fantasy. Cause you have like uh, the very first time where they blend this is, you know, the Baron's on stage telling the story about how he's, you know, basically suckered the, uh, Oh God, what the Turkish King out of all his, out of all his gold and stuff. And it's just this beautiful thing where it's on, you know, on screen left, you've got, you got the stage and all this stuff. And then, as they pan over, it just goes right into this beautiful palace. And it's just like this seamless thing. Or when they're on the ocean and it transitions from, you know, this beautiful, 
dark, starry, you know, starry ocean, and it starts turning into a desert. Yeah. And all in the same shot. And it's the most. I genuinely can't think of a better transition in any film I've ever seen. And I'll say this: he chose a good child actress because Sarah Polly. I mean, of course, she's a thing now, but at the time, I think this might have been her first film. And usually child actors in the 80s are annoying or cloying or something. But she's spot on. She's great. She's a good foil for the Baron. Yeah. Oh, this also, is there, have you, you've heard the phrase pull, uh, pull oneself up by one's bootstrap, yes. right? Yes. Oh, boy. <laughs> this is potentially where this uh, phrase came from because, you know, we, we've, you know, it's been bastardized, of course, over the time. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, it's supposed to mean means to succeed without anyone's help. No, it means to do something impossible. You know, in the case in the film, the Baron gets him, pulls himself out of the ocean, well, himself and his horse, out of the ocean by pulling on his ponytail. <laughs> and, pull, and then he pulls himself, you know, by his bootstrap out of the out of the water yeah he does the impossible that's the thing is that it has this is the way the whimsy works for me i don't know why because it's so outrageous but it uh it it might be a little bit of like those old general mcbragg do you remember those cartoons they're part of like the dudley do right or rocky and bullwinkle i don't recall those but he tells these really high uh highfalutin tales that couldn't possibly be true but the Baron kind of has that going where no one believes him because they're so outrageous. And then you just go watch them happen. Or did they? Or, you know, I mean, that's the great part about it. Yeah, the, the best part about this film is that it's where does the fantasy end and the truth begin? And how, you know, it's like it always kind of seems as though it is all fantasy. And I think it works for it up until the point where I think the the ending just kind of farts on itself. Yeah. It's like you have this beautiful, you know, you know, fantastical ending and, you know, and all this stuff. And then, you know, Oh, our hero's assassinated and the angel of death is, you know, is taking a soul. And then we go to the play again and it's just, Oh no. And then everybody lived happily ever after, you know, because, you know, it was, it's all play. And then it kind of keeps going <laughs> after that, and it's just like, ah, no, no, you had you had this beautiful ending, and you didn't know when to stop. But it's definitely, I still think it's a film people should check out if you've never seen it because it's so fucking weird. It is. It's the most expensive weirdo film. I said how expensive um, Abyss was. This was nearly as expensive. But it only made like twelve million dollars. Yeah, this this is a this is a, a failure of colossal proportions. But it, Terry Gilliam is always someone that you should check out just for the simple fact that he makes some of the weirdest damn films. And studios are almost always paying for it. It's not independent. It's amazing. No, he he's got uh, pictures of the right people naked. <laughs> he drew them with cutouts from <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now the last one we've got is Millennium. Now this is a late edition. I kind of threw this at him. I uh, didn't think he was going to be able to do it in time, but it's something about it just caught my attention. I've seen it once before, but I don't think I really paid attention to it. This is an odd duck. This feels like it should have been bigger, but it was handled by an independent studio. 
uh, delayed for a decade from original pre-production, and it has the stench of Canada all over it. It What's funny is it kind of reminds me, minus all the body horror, of course, but it reminds me of Cronenberg. Uh, yeah, like, well, it has a Canadian feel. It has a lot of his cast members, like Robert Joy, and there's that one dude uh, that was in Scanners. Um, but it has this offbeat thing. There's something about Canadian horror and sci-fi that always feels different, and I don't know what it is. I can't put my finger on it. Well, I think part of it is is this film really leans into its sci-fi side, and I think that's actually to its detriment. Because okay, uh, effectively, there's this air you know airplane crash that uh, Chris Christopherson is investigating, in which uh, on the black box recording, all of a sudden the co-pilot has rushed you know checked on the passengers and rushed back in and and says like they're all dead they've been burnt up and you know that wouldn't have happened prior to them crashing and the plane burning up, you know so investigating it starts to turn into uh, this discovery that people a thousand years in the future are kidnapping uh, plane plane crash victims replacing the bodies and allowing you know the plane crash to, to occur because they need people who have not been uh, 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 well, I can't think of the word be they need fertile people in the future because the human race can no longer produce babies. It, well, that, and they're all like this, like something deformed and mutilated except for like a small batch of people that they send to the past. And they're the ones that use all their resources to keep them healthy and strong and looking normal. Yeah. And that's the thing is the, the interesting story would have been all of this uh, stuff that we see in the present day. And then we only maybe only getting the glimpse of the future at the very end, I think ends up being a lot more, a much more compelling story because I mean, shit, there's a point where it's like Chris Christopherson meets this lady, has an affair with her. And then she just magically disappears on him. She then, he then runs into her a short time later and she has no idea who he is. And he's apparently from the future. And they literally spell it out for the audience like you're a complete and total dummy that, oh, you must – that means you go back in time at some point and go and meet this man before the, the time that you met him. You're going like, no shit. I've seen a movie before. Did yeah, you have to but I also me? feel like the studio probably saw the final cut and said this is a little incoherent. That feels like a pickup shot, These, this exposition stuff. Yeah, I don't know. Well, yeah, you're you're probably right. I'm not not denying that. It just it really sits there and goes, "Wow, you think we're all stupid, <laughs> don't you?" My God. But again, that's kind of why I feel the idea of the entire story being played out in this, you know, maybe maybe a little bit non-linear fashion, where you kind of have the the stuff where it's like the plane crash, you know, uh, him him, him uh, finding this thing, running into a woman, knowing who she is, you know, and then we jump back to a, the couple of days before, and it's like, oh, okay, so we, you know, we kind of go on, what's going on? You know, it's, and this, you know, you have this uh, professor talking about time travel and all this other stuff. 
and then maybe then maybe you go and oh yeah you know the reason why you have these memories of 1963 is because of this and you have this you know blah blah yeah well i feel like most of the focus was on trying to compete with the big boys this is from a company called gladden entertainment and they had a few hits under their belt they did the mannequin and weekend at bernie's and uh they had a couple duds and the guy who ran the company was notorious for um oh what do you call it embezzling um so he would say the movie cost 10 million dollars sell it to fox on those you know that kind of thing like okay so if you if i spent 10 million dollars you give me five for american distribution turns out he never spent anything near what he told people he was spending and he would pocket a bunch of the money and it's not a new thing and uh, you know it won't end any day soon because i've seen it with numerous companies but he got busted pretty hard for this one and this was the second time he had gone to jail for it it was crazy and uh i feel like he spent all the money on the special effects and then saved himself on because i feel like Chris Christopherson, Cheryl Ladd, and Daniel J. Trevanti, those are like TV movie levels at this point. So I'm kind of shocked that Fox picked this up and put it in theaters. It, it even it made like $5 million. I was kind of surprised that that was a full release. Sounds like a porn it's thing. Like, Sorry, not full release. It, well, it's like <laughs> I, I sit there and just – I only can think of this film as a, as a video release because I know that poster anywhere. Yeah. And it's always because I'd always seen it in video stores. It's so weird that Shop Factory put this out on Blu-ray. They could have put it out by itself and maybe got some interviews because most of these people are still alive. And no, they put it on a Blu-ray combo with a movie called Rotor, which has a budget of like $150,000 and it's unfucking watchable To put that with Millennium, yeah, Millennium is flawed. But it's not shit like Rotor, so I'm, I'm a little shocked that they threw them together. Well, it's like I just kind of feel bad that I only got to see the the u.s ending and not the international one which basically is a little less ambiguous yeah it is on the blu-ray and um problem is the blu-ray now i think runs 89 dollars it went out of print a couple years ago from shop factory so sadly we watched the cheap vhs version which something about that was charming though did you feel like oh this feels like i was oh. actually watching it 30 years ago <laughs> old tape <laughs> it might have been even taped off television it looked worse than vhs could have been I'm, I'm pretty sure. I'm almost 100% sure that someone just did a dub of an old VHS tape. Yeah. And again, or it was one of those even... cheapo ex- extended plays. Remember those ones that were a lot oh. lighter? It could have been that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is that it? That's all five films? That's all five films. Well, John, uh, we're not ending our adventure, but we're just going to go under a different name. But thank you, everybody, for uh, well, it was 20, 2014. It's almost seven years of this podcast. But it's time to close the doors on this and move on to a new place. But yeah, but we got through an entire decade. Yay! Woo! So 1990 is going to be fun galore. We got Total Recall. We got Gremlins too. We got uh, <laughs> The Guardian. Uh, I'm trying to think of other stuff from 1990. Jacob's Ladder, stuff like that. You know, all sorts of things to choose from. What will we pick? I don't know. Um, I know it won't be the adventures of Ford Fairlane. <laughs> I am no. taking a break. Uh, hopefully I'll be talking to you all from a different state by the time I'm come back for this. So, uh, we're taking a, a good chunk, chunk out of, uh, the podcast for a while. And, um, I'm tired. I don't even know what I'm saying anymore, but John, where can we find you? I am on Twitter at M Y U Z I S H I O N. Also on, uh, on Twitch as well. I stream video game stuff. 
All right, everybody, that is it. Just make sure when you come back, you find us under the Hit Rewind name, and that is it. Mwah! See you later. I just gave y'all hickeys. Thank <laughs> you.